Welcome again to Equipping the Body. I'm Pastor Brad Starnes, and we are continuing our walk through the book of Ephesians, while also, as we walk through the book, you will notice that I'm not preaching a sermon. I'm expositing each verse while also stopping to show you how to study the Bible, hence the name of our podcast, Equipping the Body. This podcast is designed to help you grow in your inductive Bible study skills, teaching you how to make observations, then interpretations, and finally, applications, the three steps to inductive Bible study. You'll hear me mention them over and over, observation, interpretation, application. And so today, we're going to pick back up where we left off, and I'm going to go over a few more verses again. Last time we were together, we were in verses 13 of chapter 1, verses 13, 14, and hopefully we'll get through uh, 15 through 20, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure. I never really know when we're going to start and finish. So let's look back at verse 13, but first uh, let's go back to verse 12. I apologize. It says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. So Paul is previously, if you remember, talking about our redemption in Christ, and he talked about the doctrine of predestination before that, and then the doctrine of redemption, how that those of us who believe and repent of, of our sins are redeemed in Christ. We are forgiven of those sins. We are bought back with his blood, referencing his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for our sins. And those should all be familiar themes to anyone who spent any time reading the New Testament. And so, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory that we, that our lives, the fact our salvation and the difference our life should be to the praise of his glory. And so I just thought about this. Does your life bring praise and glory to Christ? When people see you, do they see the difference that Christ has made in your life through your salvation? And does it lead them in awe of Jesus Christ? You know, Jesus healed a guy one time and the disciples said, well, why was this guy sick? Was it because he was a sinner or because his parents sinned? And Jesus said it was done. And, of course, I'm paraphrasing. I'm not quoting verbatim. But Jesus said it was done so that the Father might be glorified in heaven. And so the difference in our life through our salvation should be the praise of his glory. It should, be, it should bring honor and attention to the one who changed us. And that is, of course, Jesus Christ. In verse 13 it says, whom, In whom ye also trusted, in whom now who was the last person mentioned before whom, right? Christ in verse 12. So the whom is Christ. So in Christ, you could say, ye also trusted. So when you got saved, you placed your trust in Christ. You were trusting him to forgive you of your sins, realizing that you cannot do anything to merit your own forgiveness or to save your own soul. It is completely and utterly a work of Christ. It's all about Jesus. As the old hymn says, only trust him, only trust him, only trust him now. He will save you. He will save you. And so it is about trusting Christ now. But there was something that had to come before that. Nobody wakes up and just decides to trust Christ. Notice Paul's next statement in verse 13. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Nobody gets saved apart from hearing the gospel. 
And churches, we better remember that our job is to preach the gospel. Our job is not charity. Our job is not to provide homeless shelters and food. Those things are good. They can be vehicles for the gospel. But our main and chief purpose is to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ to the glory of Jesus Christ to every creature and all nations. After you heard the word of truth, as Paul said, how shall they call upon, of course I'm quoting Romans 10 now, how shall they call upon him of whom they have not heard, and how shall they hear without a preacher? St. Francis of Sissy made a statement one time. He said, preach the gospel and when necessary use words. That may sound profound, but that's one of the most ignorant things I've ever heard, frankly, because that's like saying feed the hungry and when necessary use food. It's nonsensical. It sounds spiritual, but it's utterly illogical because you can't preach the gospel without telling people we are sinners. Jesus died for your sin. Repent and call on him without hearing the word of truth. I mean physically hearing it and then the Holy Spirit piercing your heart with it. You cannot be saved. So make no mistake, you had to hear the gospel before you could trust the object of the gospel, Jesus Christ. And may I also note, he is the source of the gospel. He is the author of the gospel. I want to quote H.B. Charles Jr. because I can't help it here. He said, Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. It's all about Jesus. So, after you heard the word of truth, you trusted. What was the word of truth? The gospel, the good news of your salvation. That Jesus died for sinners. And that all those who repent and believe will be saved. Now, in whom also after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And so after you were saved, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. At the moment of conversion, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. Now that word sealed is very interesting. Um, it denotes ownership. It denotes authenticity. And it denotes something to be genuine. And so which is it? Which definition fits our context? Well, really, they all do. But I think what Paul has in mind from the context is the last one, that we were sealed. We are the ownership of God. And the proof of that is that the Holy Spirit, who is God, lives inside of us. And so now that makes sense with Pauline theology because Paul also says what? I am a slave to Christ. In other words, God owns me. And so I think we consider the bigger context of Paul's theology that clearly he is trying to get the point across to us that God owns us. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Now watch this, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Okay, earnest, what is that? That is a legal term for a deposit, a down payment. The Holy Spirit is a gift. He is in himself a gift to us, in us as believers, and that is the down payment. That is the deposit. That is the proof that one day we will be fully redeemed, as it were, when God calls us home to glory, whether by rapture or by death. And the seal, the earnest, the deposit, the proof, you could even say of that, is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And that is the earnest of our inheritance, that we will inherit heaven itself and the new earth. Remember, Jesus said, the meek shall inherit 
the earth. And so he is referring to those who are in him and those that he is in. And so we are in our, the earnest of our inheritance, the proof, the down payment is the Holy Spirit inside of us. And then Paul kind of changes gears in verse 15, and he begins to speak about his prayer for the people of Ephesus. Now remember that Paul is a pastor at heart, and he prays for all the believers that he writes to. And just by way of application, there is something we should imitate in Paul's life, that we should pray for not only ourselves, but for other believers, especially our pastors and our church leadership and our fellow church members in the local church that you are a part of. You should pray for each other. As the, as the book of, I believe it's First Thessalonians says, Therefore, brethren, pray for us. And so we should be praying for each other. So he says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul is thankful because of their faith in God. He's glad that they are saved, and he's glad that they're manifesting that by loving their fellow saints. And so their reputation causes Paul to praise God. I would hope that that could be said of our church. I hope it could be said of my church that our reputation brings praise, honor, and glory to God that people see those people are serious about the Bible and they're serious about loving each other. As Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 of the greatest commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. And the second is like unto it, to love thy neighbor as thyself. And so Paul is saying, in, a, in effect, he hears the reputation that they are fulfilling the greatest commandment. And so that causes him to be thankful for them and to praise God for that. Now, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, so he's not only pray, he's praying for them and praising God, but he's praying that God will do something for them. Let me continue. The Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in knowledge of him. So Paul is praying that God will give them the gifts of wisdom and knowledge in a spiritual sense. He's not asking God to make them healthy, wealthy, fat, and sassy. He's asking God to give them spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom that they will grow in the word of God because when you know more of the word of God, you know more of the God of the word. If we want to know God, we must read his autobiography, which is the 66 books of the Bible. You can't love somebody you don't know, and you can't know somebody you don't find out about. And so he's saying, I pray that God will lead you and guide you to teach you more about himself and to give you knowledge and understanding in the word of God and of him, of him. Verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So Paul says, I pray that God will show you what you have in Christ and what you still have yet to gain in Christ. Because remember, as Paul said elsewhere, and I believe it was in Philippians, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. We don't just get part of the glory of God here. We do. I mean, we study the word of God. We learn more about God. God's active in our lives, and that is a blessing to know him. But there is more to come in the life hereafter. 
And Paul says, I hope, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to see these things and to walk in these things and to praise God for these spiritual blessings. And I must make that note that he is talking about spiritual blessings, that your eyes of your understanding be enlightened. Why? Because so oftentimes, even as believers, we read the Bible and we even try to study the Bible, which we should, and we find ourselves not getting the understanding, but that is where the Holy Spirit comes in and he will reveal truth. He will guide us into all truth and he opens our eyes to see the truth of God's word played out in our lives and to walk. He also enables us to walk in obedience to the word of God that you'll see what is the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. Oh, what could this mean but heaven? I am looking forward to going to heaven, and I hope you are as well. And I hope you know Jesus Christ so that you can go to heaven. It, it, is, not, it is not entered the heart of man. I have not seen, ear, have not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man the things which the Father has prepared for them that love him. Won't it be wonderful there, as the old hymn says, having no burdens to bear. And so we are looking forward. Yes, yes, I'm not saying that we have to walk around here miserable. I'm enjoying the journey now, walking daily with the Lord. And as the old song says, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. But there is still yet more ahead for me in heaven, this inheritance Remember, we're joint heirs with Christ. Everything Christ gets, we get. And he gets the world. He gets it all. And so shall we. The inheritance. And what is it? The exceeding, I'm in verse 19, greatness of his power toward to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty, mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. And so... He is praying that they will see the power of God in their life, the power of God to destroy sin in their life, the power of God to spread the gospel, the power of God to serve God. All these things are not possible apart from the power of God working in us because we cannot convince. Let's just look at sharing the gospel just for a moment. I can share the gospel, but I cannot make people accept the gospel, but the power of God can. The power of God can pierce the heart. And so he, he's praying that we would know the greatness of his power according to the mighty working of his power to us who believe. Now this same power is the power that rose, uh, raised Christ from the dead, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And so we see that Paul, in Paul's mind, the power of God is, is most clearly manifested in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it's the greatest miracle that's ever been wrought, that, that, that God himself would die and be raised again three days later. Now you say, Pastor, I thought Jesus died. He did, but Jesus is God. Remember what Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Again, as H.P. Charles Jr. said, Christianity is Christ and Christ is God. And set him at his own right hand. Why? Because the right hand is the seat of authority in the heavenly places in heaven. 21, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And so he is above not only the ages, the names and the dominions and powers of Paul's age, which were Caesar 
and all the various uh, governmental figures and even the religious powers that be, but even the ages to come, even in our day. We live in a day, and you know there's proof of that. We're still talking about Christ, but Caesar, the only, <laughs> the, the only thing a lot of people remember about him is we got a salad dressing named after him. And I'm being funny, of course, but that just goes to show you that the name of Christ will persevere where the names of the powers that be will not. And so he, Christ has been said, he has been exalted, he has been lifted up. His name is above every name. And Paul's saying, I'm praying that you see that and that you understand that. Now that brings me to verse 22. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So we see that the church is to be the body of Christ, that Christ is the owner and the head of the church. Now, let me draw this illustration that I draw a lot. When we say Christ is the head of the church, consider that the head means the leader. Okay, now let's think about a physical body. Your body responds to your brain. What your brain tells you to do, your body does through synapses and various workings of the mind. And so, for example, I was thirsty earlier, and my brain told my body I was thirsty. Now, I'm being kind of kindergarten here a little bit, but you get the point. And my brain told my body, get up and go to the kitchen and get some tea, which I did, and I drank it. Now I'm no longer thirsty. You see, my, my body is following my head. But if your body is not following your head, you're sick. Okay? When you have a disease and the body is not operating properly, it's not doing that which the brain commands, you're sick. Okay? If you have somebody whose head's telling them to do things that are unhealthy, we call that mental illness. And draw that same analogy to the local church. The local church is to be the body of Christ. And if they're not listening to the head, which is Christ, if they're listening to any other source, then, my friend, you have a sick body, i.e. a sick church. And so Paul makes this point that Christ has been exalted. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the body. Okay, And we should be in submission to him. And all things are under his feet. Everything is under his feet. Even now, Christ rules and reigns with dominion. Now, I understand that we look out at our world and Christianity is not winning the day. But I want to make you aware of this. When Christ returns, he will return. He will slay his enemies with the sword. The book of Revelation is abundantly clear. And yes, that means physically. Jesus is physically going to kill his enemies and rule and reign from Zion's holy hill for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom. You say, Pastor, you mean to think that Jesus is literally coming back and literally going to physically in person rule the world. That's exactly what I'm saying. All things will be under his feet. The largest militaries of the world under his feet. The greatest economies of the world under his feet. The most powerful Aspects of the darkness of the kingdom of this age of Satan, they're going to be squashed under the feet of Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul's prayer that they would know these things and walk in these things. And then he finishes up by referencing the resurrection of Christ, which is typical of Paul because in Paul's mind, the resurrection, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, i.e. the gospel, is the building block for all of theology. It is all flows back to 
the gospel. And so we've asked these questions as we go, who, what, you know, uh, what, all things, who, whose feet, Christ's feet. And so we ask those questions as we go. And I'm going to stop right there simply for the fact that brings us to chapter 2. And so <clears throat> remember as you're studying your Bible, you need to be able to reference Bible study tools. Now, the passage I just dealt with is somewhat difficult, okay? It's not as clear what Paul is talking about because he's using a lot of lofty spiritual language. And when you run across that, you may be uh, feel inclined to pick up a commentary. And as I've said before, and I want to say again, when you go to look for a commentary, you need to check the credentials of the author, okay? Does he actually have a legitimate uh, scholarly education? Did he go to seminary? Did he go to a real seminary? Okay. Is he known? Is he respected in the evangelical circles? Does he believe the Bible is word of God or is he writing his commentary as a literary work? There are, there are atheist Bible scholars. Um, his name just Bart Ehrman is a Bible scholar and an atheist. So you, you can't just grab a commentary because the guy has the educational credentials. You need to check his spiritual credentials. Does he believe that the word of God is inspired, infallible, and errant? And so keep those things in mind. And also just go slow and continually ask your questions, who, what, when, where, how, why. And so as we continue to study this book of Ephesians, I hope that you'll apply these tools and that they'll richly bless you. God bless you, and until next time.